This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. It is a great pleasure for me uh, to uh, welcome Mr. Stephen Newberry to this panel discussion on leadership. Uh, Steve has been uh, a leader for a long time in his career. Uh, after uh, coming out of uh, Navy, he has also been a leader in many businesses. And the last one that he has been working on was LAM Research, where he uh, entered the company when it was a much smaller company that uh, was relatively not as well known to a, a large uh, $10, $15 billion company today that, that's got so much more reach in the industry out there and how he, in the process, uh, built a company that's entirely based on a set of values and how he has constantly advised us uh, on why values are ultimately going to be important for you if you want to have a productive career and a satisfying career. Uh, he also has been helping us in many ways in developing the collaborative leadership program. Uh, if uh, for some of you who have uh, been part of it or just have heard about it uh, because you're joining us now. The initial idea for that actually happened when uh, we went to Steve's uh, house in Montana and uh, started talking to him about uh, developing a leadership program uh, that would be the hallmark of uh, GSM. And uh, it was a four hour conversation and I took copious notes during that conversation, uh, brought it home with me and have referred to those notes as we went uh, along developing that. And in the process, uh, who better to guide us in developing the program than uh, Professor Kim Elsbach, who actually holds the Newberry Chair in Leadership. Uh, and uh, she was part of the process of developing the leadership program along with a few other alumni and uh, staff members. And today we actually have a program because of all the starting point of the conversation I still remember uh, three, four years ago now. And uh, in addition to all of this stuff, Steve is very active in supporting UC Davis. Uh, you have one of the most prestigious awards that uh, students uh, compete for in the MBA program, uh, which is the Newberry Leadership Award. Every year it's been a a one day long process for us to choose the two people or, or one person who ends up winning the award. Uh, we have at least one of the award winners this year, Dan Student with us today. Uh, so it, Steve is never inactive. He has been doing a bunch of things, but he is now on the board of uh, Splunk, uh, very much into new technologies uh, and, uh, and uh, a, a breadth of knowledge. And I think what you will hear today is, is something that I can't explain. Um, Steve takes you from one area to another area very seamlessly and somehow seems to link them all together in answering a question that you would have. So it is a, it's a true honor to have Steve with us today. Thank you, Steve, for doing this. And Kim, it's all yours now. Okay, thanks. Thanks a lot. Um, so instead of uh, talking about a specific industry like you have in, in some of the past um, of these panels, we're going to really just focus on the topic of, of leadership. Obviously, Steve's experience is more in the tech industry, but his um, expertise as a leader uh, crosses many industries. So we're, we're going to really focus on that. 
Um, and so one of the first questions I was going to ask you, Steve, is if you could talk a little bit about the what you think the primary role of a leader, especially a business leader, is in very uncertain times. We've got uncertainty uh, due to the, the pandemic, of course, but then that has all of these domino effects related to the economy. And um, we've got, you know, uh, elections and other sorts of uncertainties piled on top of that. What, what's the role of a leader in, in those kinds of uncertain times? Oh, we yeah. need to unmute you. Yeah. There you go. Oops. You're still, you're still muted. Sorry, Steve, you're still muted. It unmuted and then muted again. Yeah. There, there you go. go. Okay, when we first started, this was interesting because it was primarily expected to be around COVID-19, which obviously has created quite a bit of a challenge for business leaders, um, executives, employees. But now with all the social unrest that's going on, uh, it's added another element of uh, change that is affecting people's lives in significant ways. And, and so in my mind, when I, when I talk about a basic definition of leadership, it's about how to create positive change. So the question becomes, well, when you're in the midst of significant and sometimes dramatic change like we are now, then the role shifts from not just uh, providing leadership and guidance to a positive change direction, but helping people cope with all the uncertainty that goes on around change. Most people don't like change. Change is uh, destabilizing. Change is uncomfortable, and certainly a lot of people are going through um, certain elements of uncomfortableness, whether it's looking at um, their own uh, behaviors and reactions to uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and police uh, reforms that are needed, social injustice mechanisms, etc. And leadership in times of really significant change, I think becomes even more important than when things are relatively stable and you're trying to lead the change process to maybe a new direction or maybe a new uh, change in, in course uh, in pursuit of a, uh, a positive change of some sort. So this is a different kind of change. And I think that changes like this require tremendous amounts of communication outbound, but also listening inbound. And I think a lot, a lot of leaders are good at understanding where they want to go and how they want to do it. And then they have to focus on how to be an effective communicator. Of, uh, what's the need for change? Where do we want to go? Why is, why is that the right place to go? And, and then working to build up a, uh, a, a kind of a coalesced group of people who get behind that and who believe in it. And so I think that this type of change, though, is, is more difficult and more complex because probably a lot of leaders themselves don't necessarily know um, where is it 
that they want to lead their companies and their employees through a, a process of uh, helping employees work through the, whatever discovery mechanisms they may need to or want to go through, but also how it relates to the culture that may exist in the company today and how, how positive is that culture in terms of open communication? How positive is it in terms of teamwork and diversity? And what investment has been made in the past in terms of helping people understand biases? Um, companies today, well, progressive companies today, do in fact invest in bringing people in to help uh, people understand their unconscious biases. And at Splunk, we've done a lot of work in the last three or four years to really try to raise the consciousness level of the employee base on what are the various forms of biases, what are conscious, unconscious biases, what are their impact on people. And I think that with what's going on today, it's just going to take it to another level. Um, so I think when you take a basic question like Kim asked, it's communication, it's listening, and then it's ultimately with the right collaborative approach with people is, is to come up and define, well, what's, what's right for this company as it relates to what we do as a company, but what is our role as a um, citizen of the communities that we participate in? What are the things that we think we can do or should do to be a better uh, community participant? Um, you know, some companies come into communi communities and they have a tendency to be seen as really exploiting the community in the sense from there's tax breaks or uh, natural resource benefits, et cetera. And I think more progressive companies think in terms of um, how do we help develop this community? How do we help educate the community? How do we increase providing opportunities for people in the community? And, and when I say community, when you're a global company, that could mean what are you, what are you doing in China, uh, Korea, Taiwan, North, uh, South Korea, Japan, Singapore, Malaysia, and then all the countries in Europe. And it's, and it's different in every single community that you might have offices, you might have manufacturing facilities, et cetera. Um, and so I think that in, in today's world, uh, because we're, many companies are truly global, but even if the company isn't global, the, the social networking is global, that we have to think in terms of a much more complex set of engagements and communications and as leaders, I think people expect us to help them uh, process through how we deal with these kinds of um, complex changes that are going on today. You said something interesting in, in your answer, and you kind of came back to it at the end there, is that, you know, at this point in time, there are even business leaders who themselves are uncertain about where their company is growing. Um, and my question to you is how, how open should you be as a leader about that, uh, that, that uncertainty that you have yourself? Is it a good idea to communicate that uh, you yourself have questions 
Is that part of your communication and listening, or is it more important just to reassure um, employees that that uh, that you know where you're going, e even when you don't? Well, that's a, that's one of the age-old dilemmas as a leader: never show weakness. And I don't I don't agree with that. Okay. I think leaders need to show that they're human, and part of showing that is that you don't know everything all the time. It's clear that, in my opinion, you must know what, where you're going and how you're going to do it uh, many times, but that can get you in trouble if you think you know uh, how to do it, but in fact, you don't really know, but you, you try to represent that you do, and people are going to follow you, and if you're wrong, you lead them right off a cliff. And so and I think when you get to social issues, there's always, there's always a conflict, at least in my mind, of how much right do the employees have to know who I am as a person outside work? Um, and then how much right do they have to know what I personally think about certain things that may have no impact or very little impact in the business environment? I think today that's more complex, particularly as it relates to social uh, beliefs and feelings because we're not, you, know, you don't go into a, a work environment and all of a sudden everything is separated from the outside world. They're, they're very intertwined because of social media communications and corporate communications, et cetera. So I think that um, CEOs and other senior executives need to recognize that they, they do have to communicate their belief system when, when, we, when we set up our, our value system, those, those were not things that were separate from our personal lives. They were, in many, many cases, manifestations of our personal belief systems that we were bringing into the work environment because we felt that they were important in terms of what we believed in and what we stood for and what we, what we wanted the company to stand for, but what we wanted to each other to stand for and to believe in. So, so I think today that's even... So you may not know exactly what you're going to do in every situation, but you do know that those choices are going to be driven and guided by a set of values. And that, that is something that, that doesn't change, even though everything around you may be changing. Is that? Well, I think it's a great point. Values in the absence of knowing what to do, in fact, will tell you what to do. Maybe not to high specificity, but they'll tell you the right direction. And it'll also tell you what not to do. But I, but I do think that people expect today that their senior leaders and particularly CEOs, um, what, what is your belief system as it relates to, uh, let's say, social injustice? Um, and, and for a lot of people who, especially at high tech, there's a lot of Asians um, you know, the, the, the blacks are underrepresented, the um, Hispanics are underrepresented, yet they do have a presence. And there's no question that the Hispanics are asking, well, what about us? How, how are what you're going to do going to help us with some of the problems that we have, which today are not getting any attention? Um, and then Asians have their own set of challenges and issues, which largely due to the fact that many Asians have been very successful at uh, education and then 
especially in high tech, getting really good positions, et cetera, the society doesn't tend to worry about, you know, well, what are the problems for the Asians? I mean, compared to the blacks, they don't matter, blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't, I don't think that that's true. And I think that leaders have to be open to not, not changing the narrative today, which is very focused on, on black lives, but at some point recognizing that it deal with the whole challenge of what, what, are, the, what are the issues that people um, of color face in, 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 the, in the work environment and in society, and how is that affecting their ability to, um, uh, to be productive, to be effective, and to feel like the company sincerely cares about them. So I think in the course of all of that, I don't, I don't think it's a problem for a CEO to stand up and say, look, I, I don't yet know all the specifics of what we're going to do. I just know we're going to go work on this. I just know we're going to bring some people together and we're going to talk about some things. Um, as senior leaders, we're going to listen. And, and as a function of this, we're going to try to take advantage of the, the greater recognition that occurs now that uh, a lot of people have chosen to just take for granted whatever it is that's going on. And we need to realize now that we're not going to take for granted, but the only way for us to go do something positive that creates positive change for a broader set of our employee base is to be committed to go work on that and not just talk about it today for three months and then, then it goes away. So that, that, that statement I just made there says, I don't, I don't really know exactly what we're going to do. I just know we're going to go do this, this, and this, but where that ultimately leads us, we'll, we'll, we'll discover it together. Yeah. Great. Um, thinking about um, some of our graduates uh, who are people who are moving up into leadership positions, who hope to uh, work their way up in companies and um, they may start as, as leaders of teams, but, eventually have their own companies. What are some of the, the new maybe skills, um, abilities uh, that they may need to hone to be effective in the coming months and years as we all get used to um, sort of the new normal? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in, in general, and then moving to COVID specifically, I think there's a greater recognition that uh, figuring out how to have a team uh, on a participatory basis really truly be more inclusive of each other and how not just the leader but other members of the team have to be facilitating uh, those who are shyer, those who are less assertive, uh, seeking out what they, they think. <clears throat> I think that what happens in a lot of teams is those who are assertive, those who are self-confident have no problem in in speaking out and contributing, and maybe that's a quarter of the team, half the team, or three quarters of the team, but there's always a certain percentage of people who are not that assertive, who are not that self-confident, and if, and if their participation isn't facilitated, then you lose um, the perspective that they have, and, and so I think, I think those skill sets definitely need to be enhanced, and I know that they're being taught at the GSM, and, and I think that we, we need to uh, not just take it from an academic standpoint, but I, because I know that there's a lot of applied team learning that's, that's going on, but make sure that when they go into the, the workforce, 
that they may not go to work for a company where that's the norm. That may be not the norm. So how do you, at some point, recognize that there's a leadership opportunity that in a team that you might participate in, maybe you can model that behavior. If, if you get an opportunity to lead a team, that you commit yourself to lead it in a different way than what might be the norm, and, and explain to people why you are wanting to try something different, because there's going to be people in there who are used to whatever that current corporate cultural norm is, and may be uncomfortable with it. So it, there's no question in my mind, it does take courage to be a change agent, whether as a team member or as a leader. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping that we, we produce graduates at the GSM where we help them understand that taking risk and having the courage of your convictions is extremely important because unless you are fortunate enough to have somebody who recognizes your uh, capabilities and your ability to contribute and then facilitates that, you may very well have to kind of blaze that trail yourself, which is not an easy thing to do. But if you, if you can do it, um, then you're, you will be recognized very quickly as a positive change agent, which is what leadership is fundamentally about, in my opinion. Yeah. When we talk about COVID, I think this is, this is a problem that I managed work groups that were both locally there in the, in the campus or the building that I work, and then at global workforces where um, you're running sales and management or manufacturing or field service groups where you already were using either you know, teleconferencing or we were using satellite video stuff back in the days when the latency was not, not so good. Um, but you have to set up a process by which, okay, what frequency are we as a team going to talk and what frequency am I going to talk to, let's say my head of South Korea, my head of Japan, et cetera. So I just set up a rotating situation where I would have a 30 minute discussion with every leader every week. And then every two weeks, the whole group would get together on a you know, kind of a video conference like zoom. And, and we would talk more in depth because I, I really felt it was important that we could all speak to each other simultaneously so that whatever I was saying, they could all hear it. And whatever somebody was saying about what was going on, everybody else could hear it. And so I think that now, instead of just field-based executives having the challenge of communicating, now all employees and all managers and executives have that. And, and for the most part, um, maybe the new normal ends up being that 50% of the people at any one point in time in a given organization are always working from home. Yep. Um, and so that means we have to teach a whole new set of skills because communication is hard enough when you can, you know, face-to-face -face deal with people. And I think that there will be people coming out and saying, look, how do you, how can you increase your effectiveness and your productivity in a Zoom-type setting? We, we did a board meeting in June with 23 people on the call. And it's, it's, it's something that in my opinion has got to be fixed because when, when you have that many people on and somebody wants to talk, whoever gets in the nanosecond before the other person, the mic picks up and the other person's blanked out. And we need a process where you, you, know, you push a button and boom, it, it sequences you so that you're having this competition stuff. And, you know, boards are like any other group. We have people who are very polite and, 
you know, kind of willing to be patient. And we have others that can't wait to hear themselves talk. And so they jump right into the equation before the speaker finishes. So they know that they're coming up in the queue. So I think we're going to have to learn how to be uh, respectful. And when I think about um, less assertive people in a Zoom environment, it's even more difficult for them. So I think there's some skill sets we're going to have to focus on uh, teaching people um, how to use these kind of communication vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, we're all learning it together, Steve. <laughs> Trust me, my students could, could comment a lot on that. The good news is our students are so far ahead of us, Steve, that um, they're picking it up much quicker. So, um, so one of the things I, I wanted to follow up on was um, thinking about, you know, things that are changing. There's a lot of stuff that we're going to have to do that's different. Are there any things, aspects of being a leader um, in business now that are unchanged? What Are there any things that are sort of business as, as usual, despite social distancing, be, despite, um, you know, sort of the economic downturn and, and some of the political things going on, or, or is everything different? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think, I think it's probably closer to everything's different, at least in some way, sometimes just a nuance, but another significant. Um, I, th I think that, for instance, like LAM, LAM Research was designated an essential business because semiconductors were viewed as essential technology to continue to produce. So trying to run a production facility that's ramping with, with social distancing requirements says you can only operate at like 60% of your normal capacity, but your demand's up 130%. So how do you, how do you deal with that? And the answer in the short term is you don't. You, you end up with a huge backlog. So then you have to fight the issue of which customers get what, and customers aren't happy. And you know, it, So you could take something that was a normal manufacturing process, but social distancing by itself has, has made a dramatic change to it. And then you can set up where a normal conference room, you'd have people sitting two or three feet apart. You have to build new conferences rooms so you can hold the same number of people, but enable them to do social distancing. So there's investments that have to be made that you didn't ever think about how to spend. So I think when you, when you look around at however long we're going to be on the social distancing, it's, it's affects everything in, in big and small ways. And that's why I think that the ideas that people can bring to the party about, hey, here's a way that maybe we could approach this that would help us be more effective. And, you know, no one person has all the answers and no one person should be defining, you know, whether it's the head of manufacturing as to what we're going to do or what we're not going to do. I think, I think leaders have to be in engaging and creating participatory approaches to things to an even greater extent that they did. Um, and I mean, I, I, I've watched some people come up with some very creative things and I'm sure you have as well that you wouldn't even think about. Um, and, and so you need that, that input from people who are much, they're very comfortable with social media communication, very comfortable with video communication. And, and I think at the end of the day, we'll figure out how to get more productive than we've been for the last three months or so of this. But it's, it's difficult for me to think that 
with social distancing requirements that we can ever be as productive. Mm -hmm. And so the only thing that you have to deal with then is if you want your capacity to be equal to what you would normally have been able to create, you have to build another plant. Then you build another plant. Now you've changed your cost structure and all the things, you know, it kind of gets to be a snowball effect. Yeah. You can solve the problem, but at the end of the day, you won't solve it with the same degree of efficiency. So you have to decide what's most important, how effective we are and we sacrifice efficiency to be more effective. And those are the kind of decisions that I think people are going through right now. And, they, and they're, they're questioning, yeah. will this go away? So I'm not going to make that investment because if I make it, then those costs are, are fixed and then I don't need it anymore. Now what do I do? Right. I mean, tough, tough point we are right now because we just don't know. It sounds, I will kind of uh, segue into the, the next question I had, which was balancing sort of daily crises. What do I do in order to meet this demand with strategic thinking? with long-term strategic thinking about um, what to grow in my business and, and what to pull back on and balancing that. Do you have any, any insight on how to, how to balance the, you know, between putting out fires today and then thinking about long-term strategy? Yeah, I, I think you don't want to deviate from a strategic standpoint. You have to understand where, where the customer needs are, where the market opportunities and needs are, because independent of where we are right now, those are still going to evolve. Those are still going to occur, and they're not likely to slow down, particularly if you think about it from a tech perspective. Nothing slows down in tech. So, so the challenge becomes is, is maintaining your vision strategically. Where do we need to go and what time do we need to go there? But tactically, the problem becomes, well, how the heck do we get there now where everything is so much more difficult in the short term. Um, and so I think that's, it's, it's that tactical near term expression of what do we do? And if, and if we have lost productivity and we have, what things are we going to drop that in a, in a, a, a state of non COVID situations, we do them, but you can't do everything and you don't want to slow down the most strategically important things for some of the stuff that are more nice to have. So I think making decisions of what you're not gonna do in today's environment is really important, but also by understanding strategically where you're going, your priorities become clear to the whole executive team. Everybody agrees on the decision and then they go off and execute it. But we're doing that right now at Splunk, where we're dropping some programs um, because we can't get enough resources to bear in an efficient enough way. Although Splunk as a software company can get an awful lot done um, compared to a hardware manufacturing company like, like Land Research and a technology company. But still, even at Splunk, we have to, we have to pare back um, on some of our things, but not affect the, the, the three to five to seven year strategic roadmap. Okay. Um, next thing I was going to ask you is what, if anything, has been a big surprise to you in terms of the firms that seem to be doing well versus those that are struggling um, during this pandemic? Have you, have you been surprised by any of the, uh, the effects of the pandemic on specific companies? Wow, who would have thought you know, that company would 
would have stepped up while would have thought some other company would have been having such a hard time? Any? I really haven't been that surprised because I think that companies who have good processes, who have great communication mechanisms, top down, side to side, uh, this is when they distance themselves from those who are weaker because obviously, as we talked about earlier, the need for excellence in those arenas to keep people together uh, is even more important. So in my mind, what happens is the good get better faster, weak get weaker faster. Um, And I I think that um, we have, I've just seen too many companies where the the CEOs and the senior executive team uh, didn't spend enough time on what's what's their culture what's their value system what are the key processes that enable the company to be successful in complexity what are their communication vehicles that are done on a daily weekly bi-weekly monthly basis quarterly etc and how well was that taught how well do the thousands of employees that might be in a bigger company how well do they really understand how that works and to the extent that that was invested in those companies are doing well. And I know a handful of them personally talk to executives about it, but if it's not in place and you try to put it in place in an environment like today, look, it's hard enough under normal times. I think it's, I wouldn't say impossible, but much more difficult to try to get that accomplished. um, If you, if you've never had it in place before. Okay. That's a, that's a great point. I mean, I love how this is circling back to values, which is where we started. Um, and I, I guess that was, that sort of leads up to my last question, which is, you know, what, what are some sort of lessons learned that, that you know, business leaders can take away from the dealing with this crisis that will serve them well in years to come, even if we're not in a crisis anymore? Yeah, I, I think uh, really well-run companies think about uh, business continuity issues, things that can affect the business, um, and they put them in place and have them sitting on a shelf ready to go. And some of them are specific, like in the Bay Area, it was what do we do in the event of a major earthquake that you know collapses the buildings, and so where's our where's our uh, disaster recovery manufacturing sites on a global basis. What can we do in Portland? What can we do in Livermore versus what we do in Fremont? And you think through all those things. You have all those scenarios thought through. Um, And I think that when you think about a pandemic, um, you you think about in terms of, well, what do I do with my workforce? Can't come to work. To what degree have you really thought through, well, how will you do distance working? Um, I don't think very many companies thought about that one, but I know that a lot of companies had disaster recovery plans um, and quite extensive ones. And and one of the things that really drove home to me one time was we were putting this disaster recovery plan in place for land and we sit on San Andreas fault and we're on landfill on the San Francisco Bay. And so the buildings are designed to withstand a, uh, eight earthquake, except liquefaction will occur at seven. And so the buildings will be standing, but they'll have sunk into the bay. <laughs> and so we had not invested in 
uh, having enough alternative capacity for running uh, demos and developing processes and being able to ship to customer commitments that really, if, if a disaster like that had happened, we would, have, we would have really messed our customers up, our employees, our suppliers, it would have been a mess. And so it costs $65 million to put in place a disaster recovery plan, most of which was additional capacity at strategic places around the world. And in the past, the previous management had always said, we, we can't afford to spend that money. And I looked at it and said, you know, if I, if I on my watch, had to stand up to the customers and the shareholders and the employees and said, you know, uh, we're a multi-billion dollar company and for the sake of 65 million, we decided to roll the dice and take our chances. And oops, I'm sorry, but you know, the dice came up snake eyes and you know, so here we are. It's like, I said, guys, this is an easy decision. We're spending 65 million because I'm never gonna want for anybody in this company to have to be in that position. I think you're gonna see a lot of people do that to a broader extent as it relates to pandemic type situations. Great, great point. Um, well, I've got, you know, some, some minor follow-up things, but I, I think at this point it'd be great to open it up to our students and other guests who are here um, to see if anybody has, um, has a question for, for Steve about leadership um, during uh, trying times. I haven't seen anything on chat, but I don't know if that means that somebody's chatting and I'm not seeing it. Um, if you want to raise your hand, you could do that and I can uh, call on you. There is this thing, Steve, where you can raise your hand and it pushes you to the top in Zoom uh, so that if, uh, if you don't want to have to try to butt in, um, you can do that. Um, but I'm not seeing that now. So, questions from from the from the group. Otherwise, I will jump in with one of my my questions, my burning question. Well, I'll ask another question. So, one of the things you said at the beginning that I'm really curious about is helping people cope and with uncertainty um, as one of the tasks of a leader. And um, without turning the leader into a therapist, <laughs> obviously. What are some things that that maybe you've used or seen used that can that you can you know uh, do to help employees cope with stress and uncertainty? Yeah, that's a that's a great question because a lot of employees are in fact dealing with tremendous levels of stress that have nothing to do with work. They have to do with their family environment, their kids. I mean, all kinds of stuffs going on as a function of shelter in place. Um, I, I, I think leaders do have a role to play, and this is not just a CEO, but any, anybody in an executive leadership position with a number of employees who work in their organization is, is, to, is to facilitate with the HR organization the opportunity for employees to participate in dialogues around what, um, what they're struggling with. And, and, what, and sometimes they don't want to do it with their bosses present. So you, you facilitate it with HR so that um, it's, it's more of an anonymous situation, but, but that the executive who may need to be a decision maker is still getting the essence of what the problems and issues are. And are there some things that we could provide for employees or need to provide or changes that we need to make? 
So I think that's really important. I think the other other thing is I, I kind of had a basic philosophy for my career was that look, try to focus on the things you can do something about and try to let go and don't worry about the things that you can't control. And I think a lot of times I see people just getting super stressed out over something that they absolutely cannot change. And so I try to funnel people into um, how, how do you take your creativity and your energy and apply it to what you can do to maybe make your situation better, a family member situation better, or a, or a fellow employee better, where in fact you can impact it and uh, tr just try not to spend very much time on stuff that you just can't do anything about. Um, and I, I think that's a good philosophy. It's, har it's, har it's harder for people to do than it is to talk about it. But, uh, but I do think that leaders need to be trying to demonstrate that themselves by, by talking about the things that they're doing that are different to try to make positive change um, as it relates to the types of problems and issues that a COVID lockdown um, creates. I think the other thing is, when I learned this a long time ago, it's like when you walk out of your office, um, be very aware of what your body language and facial expressions are communicating. Um, so I remember one, one friend of mine took me aside and I was like, totally focused on this big mess we had. I'm walking out of my office, I got my head down, got this look on my face like, you know, we're about ready to go out of business. And you're not looking at anybody, you're just walking to some place. And it goes, you know, I'm sure you're working on something really serious, but you can't do that because for the next 15 minutes, all people talked about was what the heck was going on because you looked like the world was coming to the end for the company. And I, I realized that they were absolutely right. And so I actually even got into the, the habit where if I was really kind of knowing I was stressing about something, I would, I would stop at my door before I left and I would just go, and just, you know, relax and smile and try to walk out there and then make eye contact with people. Um, which again, if, if they see their leaders as more relaxed and comfortable, I think it, it says to them, okay, you know, things are, things are going okay. And, and people need to know that because you can't talk to them all the time. But I, I, I was not aware how one or two people who see you will then tell 15 or 20 people the next thing you know, the company's thinking we're in crisis. Really, really great point. Um, you don't have to say anything for people to get a message from your body language. So, yeah, great, great point. Um, all right, do we have any questions now? Yes, okay. Um, five, oh, now I've got them. Okay. Yes, okay. Um, yeah, let's see. I've got one. Okay, so here's here's one. Do you think companies will be more willing to accept remote leadership during virtual work mode, or will visible leadership be more critical post-COVID? Oh, so that's, yeah. So are people going to uh, get used to and accept having their leaders, you know, sort of talking to them remotely? or are they going to really want you to come back and be there in person? Yeah, I, my personal opinion is that virtual communication is never as effective as face-to-face. As -face. It's, it's critically important that leaders try to make it as effective as possible, but, uh, but I'll give you an example. I mean, early in my LAM years, 
um, we, we had video conferencing capability and, and we used it and we would talk to the employees around the world. And then I decided I'm going to go in the course of this next year, I'm going to visit all 50 offices that Lamb had around the world and personally conduct an all employee meeting at the office. And that hadn't been done for 10 years by the previous leadership team. And the effect of that, where people get to see you personally face-to-face, they, they get to see you when you're not on camera, you're just interacting and intermingling with people. It, it is a tremendous positive difference to be face-to-face with people. So I, I would tell executives that, look, when this is over, we're obviously still going to have a lot of virtual meeting activity, and that can be a, a great thing. But I, I think it'd be a mistake to think that as long as you're talking to people on Zoom, it's okay. Now you got to get out there, go travel, go meet people, and and meet with them face to face. I don't think you can substitute for that. Okay, great. Uh, next question: How does something like a global pandemic change the way a good leader leads? Any new different ways to help your employee and company continue to survive and succeed? I think it's important that the employees understand, well, to what what extent has this impacted our company? What's happening to our revenue? What's happening to our customers? Are we being impacted in ways that put the company at risk? So like if you're in travel and and leisure uh, industries, hotel industries, uh, and you're an employee in one of those, you're absolutely just terrified. Yeah. You know, is my company going to survive? And I, I think business leaders have to be upfront. They have to be transparent with people. Um, you, it doesn't do any good to be positive in the face of the fact that it's not positive. People, people can handle, you know, what bad news is. You just, you just got to be straightforward with them. Then they want to know, okay, given that we're really in big trouble, what are we going to do about it? Right. And that's where as a leader, you, you better have a plan. You may be wrong and it may fail, but you, you better have a plan that people can get behind and believe that they have an opportunity to to be successful. For companies that are really not being impacted, I think it's equally important that employees know more than they normally would where the expectations that things were good is to let them know that, yeah, we're doing fine. Because there's a tendency for people to worry that it's not as good as we thought it was. In fact, it may be just as good or maybe better. Yeah. Um, so again, it comes back to there's just no substitute for uh, frequency of communication, quality of communication, and then giving the circumstances, uh, letting, letting people know exactly where the company stands and what that means to them. Um, and I, you know, the semiconductor equipment industry used to be a big super cyclical industry and, and you'd hire people and you'd lay off people and you'd hire and you'd lay off. And we finally got to the point where we uh, built a business model where we, we had a certain core set of regular full-time employees that we just didn't touch. And then we ramp up and down with temps who, uh, it fundamentally either wanted to work on a part-time basis or wanted to work as temps, but we converted a lot of people to regular full-time from temps, but the, we separated the regular full-time people from the burden of worrying about all the ups and downs and we, we transferred it to the temps, but we were straightforward with them. We said, look, um, when this thing turns down, 20% of this workforce is going to go away and we'll do everything we can to help you get 
a, another position in another company in the Bay Area, but um, this, is, this is kind of what you're up against. And by being open and honest with them, um, there, there, was, there was never any surprises. And we, we, we decided to do that because we felt like we had to provide stability and peace of mind for those three quarters of the rest of the employees in the company that we wouldn't, we wouldn't touch them no matter what. And so I think that's exactly what's going on right now. And employees, I, I think it's a big mistake when management keeps it a big secret. And then they go out and have a big meeting and a week later they announce that they just laid off 20% of the workforce. In my opinion, that should never be a surprise. Um, and when it is, I think that management's failed their, their people. Great point. Uh, next question. Have you seen leadership be effective across sectors or is industry specific knowledge more important than general leadership ability? Mm, I, you need both. Um, I think all leaders have to have a really solid foundation on what leadership is um, and what are the attributes and what are the skills and, and the characteristics of great leaders. Understanding that doesn't mean that you necessarily can execute those skills in a consistently timely manner or in a uh, consistently sufficient enough manner. But if you don't know what they are, well, then you're starting off way behind the eight ball. So we got to make sure people are educated as to what they are. And as leaders, it's an ongoing process. I've been studying leadership since I was 17 years old. Um, I won't tell you what I am now, but it's been a long time. Um, and I still learn today um, about how to be a more effective leader. Um, so I think that's number one. And then two, uh, applying leadership skills into specific markets and environments and companies it is essential. One of the ways you establish credibility is your knowledge of, of what it is that your organization does. People figure out very quickly um, whether you can talk a good game, but you really don't understand what the basis of competition is. And so I, I think it's a combination of both. And at an early point in people's careers, it's more important to understand those skill sets and characteristics of what makes a great leader. And then as you build up knowledge and specifics around whatever industry you're in, that you then recognize how to apply those skills and characteristics in ways that make a positive change into your specific environment. Yeah, okay. And um, as a sort of follow-up to that, for our students um, that are looking at organizations with value-based leadership, how can they demonstrate uh, their values and, and, their, and the, the alignment of those values with a company's values in an interview? Um, so we're, we're really, um, we've really taken on your value-based leadership and we're trying to teach our students to, to think about that leadership in that way. But sometimes they've, they've got this half an hour interview or, or you know, an hour interview and they need to demonstrate in that very short period of time. Uh, how their personal values and their leadership values align with the company's values. Are there good ways to do that? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a difficult question. Um, I think one, you gotta, you gotta understand what the company's value system is, but sometimes stated value systems that are on a website are not really what the value system is. And so trying to find out from somebody 
or in the course of multiple interviews with people is you're interviewing them. And one of the things you're trying to find out is, well, what is the real value system and what is the culture? Because what you're trying to figure out is hopefully you know yourself and sometimes people don't, but you, you better over time <laughs> learn to know who you really are, not who you aspire to be or who you think you are. Um, but I, I think that if you think, when I think about a set of core values, where, whether it's being achievement oriented, which means always striving to make things better no matter what it is that you do, being open and transparent and being a, a communicator, having honesty and integrity, having ownership and accountability, uh, being a team oriented person, putting the company ahead of your own personal agenda. Those obviously are plays off of the eight primary values of LAM. But I think in one way, shape or form, those, those core values are embedded in many companies' value systems. They're just worded a little bit differently. But so I think in the course of an interview, I, I think it's critically important to, to speak in terms of what, what you have done, if it's truly been as an individual and you can use the word I, Otherwise, if it's done in a team, you've always got to use the word we. Um, you've got to talk about teamwork. You've got to talk about what you accomplished in terms of what was the problem and communicate to people, well, how did we solve this problem and what were the beneficial results to the organization or the company or the customer? So try to demonstrate via an example your, your ability to communicate, your ability to be an effective team member uh, your ability to articulate uh, values within the context of a example problem solution that you may have chosen to present. There's a lot of times people will ask you, what's your, what's your best accomplishment you've ever done to date in your life? And, you know, I think the more you answer it personally in terms of individualistically, which, which may be what's been true in your life to date, uh, but when it's clear that there's been team stuff going on and you choose to pick yourself, what you're telling them is you're a little more I-centered than you are team-centered. Um, and there's no question it's a challenge that it's, as an individual, you have to find a way to be successful. And you have to find a way to make a contribution that in a positive way stands out without ever doing it at the expense of others. And we've all seen people who are very smart, very talented, and, you know, they're, they're far more interested in, I want to be, you know, perceived as the number one best member of this team. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to do that. And even if it means that I'm going to throw you under the bus or whatever. I mean, in today's world, people see that really fast. And good interviewers will sense how you word things as to how I-oriented you are versus how team-oriented you are. Yeah, it's a great, great example. We talk about sort of modeling your values and the stories that you tell, the examples that you give, say something about what you hold dear. So it's a great, great answer. Um, let's see. What advantages do you think GSM alum have for leadership roles? I'm sorry, I, I didn't hear that. Right, so you, you've met and know many of our, our graduates. You've met several of our, our um, uh, Newberry fellows. And I'm wondering if you uh, can identify any advantages or characteristics of our graduates that you think um, 
give them an advantage in the workplace or in an interviews? What sets our alumni apart? And can we approach that? <laughs> is that a lot of the people that I've had visibility to as, as student leaders are, are very initiative oriented. They don't, they don't sit back and wait for somebody to like ask them. They're very, very initiative oriented. They, they, they seek out opportunities to lead and participate. I think that's, that's a great thing because you know, if you sit around waiting for somebody to uh, challenge you, you might be sitting around for a long time. Go out there and I'm going to go challenge myself. And you look for problems, you look for issues. And I see that in, in so many of the students that I've, I've talked with at the GSM. The other is, I, I think that they have a uh, good sense of what they came into the program with in terms of beliefs and skills and characteristics. And what they are leaving the program with that has really built upon and made them a uh, more capable, broader leader by, by being given leadership opportunities, both in some of the volunteer activities people did, but in some of the structured programs that have been set up in the GSM. You have an opportunity to learn what it's like to be a good teammate, to be a good leader. You have your feedback programs that you've been you know, profiling people as to what their strengths and weaknesses are early. So they get a chance to work on improving them in you know, what is not a totally safe environment, but it's a safer environment than going out there and experimenting with different things in, in, the, in the business world. Um, so I, I find that there's a really strong intellectual uh, curiosity aspect of the students. And you know, people ask me what some of the keys to success are, and there's many obviously, but. One of them that I think is really, really important is to what degree do you, uh, to what degree does intellectual curiosity exist within yourself? Um, and, and if you have a super high degree of intellectual curiosity, you are going to be dealing with a, a mindset that's gonna, it's gonna show you opportunities that if you don't have that orientation, you'll never see. And if you have intellectual curiosity, you'll be in pursuit of trying to find out why is something what it is and what are the ways that I can make it better. Um, and I remember this is a silly little story, but all my life, you know, I'd walk into a restaurant, there'd be little things on the table that would describe something and I'd always pick it up and read it. And so I'm, I'm doing this as an adult. I got my two boys are like seven or eight or something. I go, Dad, why, why do you pick up every single thing's on there and read it? And guys, because I'm curious about what it says. And I'm always looking at what I can learn, even in something as silly as, you know, what's on an information card in a restaurant. Um, so I, I was very fortunate to be blessed with a, a natural level, high level of intellectual curiosity. But I, I see that in a lot of the, of the GSM graduates. I think that's a, um, something that you're not just born with, but it can be developed and, and you can see what happens to people if they're willing to take the risk to go get involved in something they know nothing about, but they trust in, I can, I can learn. I trust in my ability to, to learn and then my ability to then apply learning with some leadership skills to help create a positive uh, change.
Yeah, great, great answer. Um, that kind of fits with one of uh, another question a student have has is if you were interviewing someone for a leadership position today, um, what would you look for? And anything different from pre-COVID times? Are there specific things you look for now that you didn't before, or, or things like intellectual curiosity, um, things that you would always look for? I think the only thing that I might look more for is what's the person's level of ease in in communication. How introverted is the person? Because I, I think that it, it, all this virtual communications, well, communications is even more difficult. And so I, I would look to try to understand um, what's their ease of participating in environments like this. How comfortable are they? Um, so I would, I would definitely explore that. Um, the other thing that I look at is certain people are really good at working independently while still being in a team environment. And, and so, you know, some people left with their own devices working at home are not nearly as productive as when they're in the workplace and interacting with people, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that we're, we're going to need to try to find those people who are comfortable you know, participating in a Zoom group session. Everybody knows what they're going to do. Then going off and working independently. But in the course of that independent, who to ping and when to ping them and what frequency, et cetera. But, but the more you can work independently, the more it frees up people to work independently themselves. The more you're dependent upon other people, then the more you're making their ability to be independent uh, affected because they got to spend time helping you, which is, which is part of their job. And if they're supervisors, that's obviously part of their job. But I do think that um, if you, if you look at the type of job, how much does that job really require a fairly high degree of ability to work independently? So I would, I would look for that. If I'm looking at managers, I, I would look at who are those who are, really comfortable at recognizing the frequency that by which they have to get their team together and how to set that process up. And then I would look for their skill sets in terms of not just what they know about being a team leader. I would ask them what they know about how to bring out people's ideas in a virtual environment. Cause I think it's tough. Yeah, it's very tough. No, good, good points. Um, Another question from a student. Uh, I love the lesson of minding your body language when you left the office. How else do you navigate as a leader the unintentional messages you convey, perhaps through uh, it being wrongly dissipated by others or other assumptions, observations made of your behavior or your tone? So how do you navigate unintentional consequences of, of your body a, language or tone? And it's a really perceptive question. And the answer that I came to was I had a, I had a very high level uh, consulting human resource uh, behavioral scientist professional. And this person participated in many of my staff meetings, all my offsites, all my all employee meetings. And one of the things that we focused on was exactly what message was I communicating verbally and what alternative messages made people have picked up through what I was unconsciously doing from a facial expression, body language, whatever. And this guy was really good at it. So he would spend his time 
not just observing people's reaction to me while I was talking. He'd go talk to them afterwards and say, hey, what'd you hear? What'd you like? What didn't you like? Did you think he was clear about this? Did you understand what he was saying? So I, I, I think it's impossible for you to be able to see yourself. So you have to have somebody that you trust, somebody you think has the skills, and they can help you understand how you came across in reality, which is always somewhat different than what you thought you were going to accomplish. Yeah. Um, so tremendously valuable to me. Yeah, no, I'm thinking, I'm thinking the wheels are turning. We need to get this involved in our orientation and, and our um, career services. Have somebody who's good at reading uh, body language, tone, facial expression, uh, all of that kind of those kind of cues. There are people who are trained who are really good at that. Um, so well, you have to want to get the feedback. A lot of people don't want to hear the feedback. Yeah. That means it great, didn't it? Well, actually, it didn't. <laughs> but I mean, look, I mean, here's a classic example, right? You think Trump after a meeting goes to something, how do you think that went? He doesn't care. You know, he didn't want to do, he's totally narcissistic. And so he's uncoachable. And, and so what I, what I was willing to do was be open to the critique. And, and a lot of times I'd say, well, I don't, I didn't see that. I didn't read that kind of reaction to it. And he goes, well, I didn't either, but I talked to people afterwards. Not everybody, but there was like 25% of them took this message away. Everybody else got the message you were trying to do. I just want you to know 25% of them didn't. And well, that was really helpful to me because then I would go back and follow up with those people and they would never know why I was following up with them. I mean, they knew why he was there um, and they knew that he would be talking to me, but you, you kind of try to find it do it in a way where you don't go, hey, I was just talking to Harold, and he said you were uh, confused about this. I'm coming over here to help you get squared away on understanding what I was really saying. And yeah. you obviously don't do that. So being willing to take feedback, knowing how to absorb it, and then ultimately knowing what to do with it or even not do with it is, is really important. Because if you do it in ways that cause people to be concerned, then they won't talk to the person you need them to talk to. Um, and it will really have been your fault by not being smart enough to just take as input and sometimes just use it in background. And then at some point, X number of weeks or months later, you'll find an opportunity to remember how that person reacted to certain things and maybe change what you say as a function of that. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I, I want to do it. <laughs> um, okay. Another question. Uh, Lamp serves several very tough customers in the world. Have you faced a situation that your team failed in delivering products due to strict requirements from a customer? How did you recover from there? Well, the failure rate is in an industry like semiconductor equipment, which is supposed to be the highest of the high tech, is actually fairly high um, in terms of taking some incredibly complex five nanometer process for TSMC and delivering it the first time. It just doesn't happen. It's an iterative process. And so what happens is if, if you fail to meet a commitment, you have to be totally upfront and honest and transparent about what happened um, and what went wrong. And then what are you going to do to try and fix it in what time frame? And are you willing to spend whatever money it takes to get the customer back on track? 
Customers figure out very quickly in this industry whether you're blown sunshine by them or you, you are somebody that they can trust. And so one of, one of Lamb's um, values was number one in customer trust, not customer satisfaction, customer trust, because we're dealing with such difficult, complex problems that they make choices as to who they're going to invest in based on their assessment of the skill set of your technical team, their assessment of the capability of your management and executive team, and observations over the years as to when stuff went wrong, and it more frequently does than it doesn't, it's what do you do about it? So we're very much in an industry where it's not just what you try to get right the first time, it's what do you do when it doesn't, and, and that either generates trust in the customer or creates real problems and issues. And, and so, you know, I was 40 years in the industry and the first 20 were very different than the second 20, but it was very common for companies to, uh, and the supply side to overpromise and underdeliver. I mean, it was, that was the norm. And customers knew it and customers expected it. They made decisions on who's the least, uh, who's the least dishonest relative to what they're telling they're gonna do. So when I went to LAM 22 years ago, one of the first things we said was, we're going to break that paradigm. We're going to be the company that if anything under promises and over delivers, you've got to be quite careful about that because if your competition's promising X and you're X minus 25%, they'll go, well, we'll take the chance on those guys because you guys are under committing. So you got to walk that fine line. But basically the ability to, to win the customer's trust, which was critically important, was about openness, honesty, transparency, not over-promising and under-delivering, and then building those relationships over many, many years. Um, being in the industry for 40 years, uh, people that were at my level when we were at the engineering level uh, that ultimately came up when we were running these companies like I did, we all knew each other for a long, long time. And if you are not somebody that they trust, you will affect your company's ability to do business with them for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, really stays with you. Um, speaking of a long time, we have a question about your Navy career and your Navy service. Um, what skills, lessons, or values from your Navy service um, help, have helped you or could help you lead during, during the COVID pandemic? Um, one of the things, you know, basically everybody gets a a major in leadership when you go to the Naval Academy, even though they don't give you any credit for it. Um, the, the situation in, in a, a Naval fleet environment, whether you're on a ship or a submarine or aircraft, any submarine warfare like I was, um, the Navy really focuses on teaching you how to think on your feet and how to adapt to the circumstances and find a way to be successful. The Navy philosophy, which I think was very different in Army and Air Forces, the Navy said, if, if the rule book doesn't say you can't specifically, then you can. The Army and Air Force operate too. If the rule book doesn't specifically say you can, you can't. Mm. That is a huge philosophical difference. Huge. So when we would get out there and we're in some kind of you know, we're tracking Russian submarines or we're tracking U.S. submarines for that matter. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very difficult dynamic environment. And um, you have to adapt. You have to innovate. 
Um, so I'll tell you one, one real quick story. We were tracking in Sea of Japan, this new Russian alpha class submarine. And uh, it was the first uh, tracking by any US anti-submarine warfare. We're all flying P3s. We're doing round the clock operations to collect all the acoustic information of what are all the various frequencies that will, every boat has their own signature from the standpoint of, of frequencies and harmonics. Anyway, my team goes out there, we're flying on it. And the team that was on them ha had a problem, they had to leave early. So by the time we got back into the area, all the sauna buoys that we were trying to lock into had sunk. So we, we were coming on board in a lost contact situation in the most critical prosecution that the Navy had had in like five years with this new submarine. And so I'm, I'm the mission commander. And, and so we have we just lost total contact. And I basically, okay, boys, this is, this is what's called improvising. We're going to go and we're going to figure out how to refine these guys. And so this crew will still tell the story to this day, but I, I kind of, plotted a bunch of like possible paths based on where they've been. I go, okay, when we have enough buoys to do two paths, we're going to pick this one. And if that doesn't pick it up, then we'll have buoy sets for this other one. So anyway, about an hour and a half later, this submarine comes trucking through the buoy pattern and we pick them up. And uh, so then we, we tracked them the rest of the way and then we handed off contact. So when we got back to the tactical support center, I mean, they were like completely livid that contact had been broken. I go, well, what are we supposed to do? You know, crew left early, the buoy sank and all this kind of stuff. And he goes, well, you're just lucky that you ended up regaining contact so we could keep doing this because if you hadn't, that may have been your last flight ever. You know, that's how, that's how serious it was. So, so one of the things that you learned was um, in the Navy, no matter what's going on, they're going to hold you accountable for whatever happens. And they're going to expect you to use your creativity and they're going to expect you to find a way and no excuses. Um, so I was just thankful that <laughs> we didn't uh, fail. But I kind of took that with me into, into the civilian world where, look, you, you've got to bring innovation and, and um, ingenuity to solve problems that have been existing that haven't been solved. If you take the same approach everybody else took, you're not going to solve it. So, again, if it didn't say you couldn't, well, then go try it. Go do it. But no matter what happened, never blame somebody else. You have to be accountable. You have to, you have to take ownership. If you made a series of wrong choices and it didn't work and you spent $50,000, well, own it. Um, because people will respect you if you own up to your mistakes. If you, if you deny them, if you try to come up with all the excuses why it wasn't really your fault, that's the worst thing you can do. In the Navy, I guarantee you, if you ever tried that approach, <laughs> it wouldn't fly for a second. Very high ownership and accountability. Great, great. Well, that is the end of our questions, and I think we've um, we've really, you know, utilized your time well. Um, I want to make sure there's not anything else burning, but I think I got to to everybody. And um, as our solo panelist, you had a take um, all the weight on you. We couldn't pass it off to anyone. So I really appreciate the lessons um, we've taken away. I've taken incredible notes. I'm already thinking about what we can do differently next year in our orientation. But uh, thank you so much, Steve, for uh, your generosity and time and sharing with us. 
And um, uh, let's just give Steve a, a round of applause. Yeah, we can, we can do the, um, the reactions, uh, the thumbs up or the little hand claps um, that you can see. It's always a pleasure to have an opportunity to interact and listen to the students' questions because I think the questions are always like really outstanding. I heard some great questions that people haven't asked before. And Kim, it's always great to interact with you again. Yeah. We don't get together as often. Yeah, but... Great to see you. Um, wish I was in Montana, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, maybe someday I'll get on an airplane again. Um, so... Maybe uh, uh, Dean Yoda will bring you with him one of these times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if we can ever get on an airplane, right. Um, so I think this is the seventh and final of these panels. Um, Rao, did you have any parting words you want to leave us with? Well, not really. I mean, I'm just overjoyed. I mean, it's always such a fun to listen to Steve and, uh, and his perspectives. Uh, and today was uh, no exception. Thank you so much, Steve, for uh, uh, all the uh, insights that you gave us. Uh, and the questions I was processing those questions, they're coming at you in so many different directions. Uh, but uh, there was absolutely no uh, reaction in you. We just answered uh, because you have a very clear idea of uh, what being a good leader is. And, and I always uh, enjoyed uh, listening to you about uh, how you built uh, an organization based on values at LAM. Uh, that's a lesson that uh, we all uh, you know, learn from and try to emulate in many ways, uh, even in GSM. So thanks to all the students who were part of this discussion uh, and of course our staff who are also here and uh, you know this is uh, in fact yeah the last one of our uh, panels that we had organized during this uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, and, and uh, thanks thanks everybody and I just want to make sure that I uh, extend my thanks to Jackie and and uh, Stephanie and uh, Aisha are you here uh, uh, these were the three people who made uh, these panels happen uh, by uh, doing all the all the necessary work that needs to be done to put everybody together. And Kim, of course, thanks to you. Uh, I know that uh, we came to you a little bit later than uh, normal, uh, but you jumped right in and uh, took care of uh, the moderating. So appreciate that very much. And. Uh, You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.